got over there what this yeah what are you drinking oh just a cast of cask of uh oster and brandy you know you mean 502 because <laughs> it looks like a capri sun Shh. it's oster and brandy it's very fancy i can read the label <laughs> and it says capri sun <laughs> Are you stealing our children's Capri Sun? Shh, this is my Capri Sun. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm the Duke. I'm the Duchess. Yes, you are. We also go by other names. I'm Liz. I'm Chad. Those are the names we use when we're not trying to be jackasses. Uh, Jack Donkeys, please. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is an explicit pro- podcast. We can say what we want. <laughs> All right, so welcome back, because we had a little bit of a break as we closed up on our King Killer, and we're starting a new chapter in the Duke and Duchess podcasting history. We have a new venture that we're moving forward on, but just kind of a a quick thing, because we probably have some folks who are just coming on for this chapter specifically to, to talk about the gentleman bastards a little bit of a brief introduction to us so we started our podcast several months ago and we decided what we would do is we would be a fantasy and science fiction podcast covering all the different things in the fandom predominantly books though television shows as well graphic novels comic books we got some other things we're going to get into but what's been our big thing that we've done so far is going over the king killer chronicles and we did a a read through book club of that and now we're starting to do what we are beginning the gentleman bastard series by scott lynch and the first book in that series is called the lies of Locke lamora mm-hmm. and it's been really awesome to get into this series again i haven't read it since um, I think book three came out a little bit ago. It's it's just a fun, it's an awesome series. It's got a lot of similarities and ways that it compares in contrast to the King Killer Chronicles. So I'm really excited to talk about that a little bit too. Uh, today we're going to talk about the prologue through chapter two of The Lies of Locke Lamora. Yep, and there was definitely a little bit of confusion. We had some folks reach out to us and say, what's going on here? What's the deal with the chapters? Because... The chapters and the interludes have these different numbered sections. So you've got numbered chapters and then numbered sections within the chapters, which gets a little bit confusing. And a couple people re- you know, were reaching out to us and saying, this doesn't seem right. I've only read 19 pages. What's going on? And we had to clarify. So in my book, it was 96 pages that we covered. In yours, it was like 120. 120, right. Yeah. So, so we covered a pretty big chunk here to get started because we wanted to kind of lay the groundwork for, for this new thing. But it's been good so far. I've enjoyed it so far. Awesome. And so our spoiler policy is that Chad has not read the books. I have read them a few times. We are going to only spoil through chapter two. two. Yep, absolutely. So anything that is up to chapter two, we'll talk about anything after that. uh, We won't. Pretty straightforward, yeah. And then generally what we do at the end, you know, we go through, we talk about the section, we talk about the chapters, give our, you know, insights and and thoughts on what we we liked, what we didn't like, and then I give predictions that we can later come back and laugh at. 
because the best part of the podcast. that is fun. <laughs> Wild ass guesses, random speculation. It's what <laughs> we do best. So can you give us a section summary to talk about what, what this was all about? Absolutely. So in this prologue through chapter two section, we get introduced to the main character, Locke Lamora, the boy who stole too much. And he's got this sort of merry band of con artists in the great city of Camor. Through a series of flashbacks, we see how Locke came to join the gang. And all the while, they are laying out this sophisticated con on Don Salvara, who is a wealthy noble. And it involves a civil war and a cask of brandy. So we get introduced to this really interesting and unique fantasy world created by Scott Lynch. And we kind of get a, a basis of, of who the characters are going to be and what the, the main kind of conflict is going to be or what the con is that this band of rogues is is laying out. Yeah, I like the world building quite a bit. That was probably my favorite part to this point. Yeah, so what do you think of Kamor? It reminds me a lot of Bravos in A Song of Ice and Fire mm. and also just sort of a kind of very Italian feeling, feels very much like Venice. It's got this sort of Mediterranean feel. It's right on the water. It has canals. The names sound vaguely Italian, but it's all, it's also got, you know, aliens. It's amazing. Fucking aliens, man. Yeah, I, I love- Two words. I love the world. Definitely has like a De Medici vibe, you know, and I, and I like that, that sort of like, because there's a lot of those Machiavellian themes and principles that the book gets into, you know, yeah. and there's a lot of talk about greed and power and corruption and morality. And so in this setting that does, that is very um, like old world Venetian, I think mm -hmm. it just, it gels together really well. And then you have the otherworldly aspects, the supernatural, uh, you know, aspects. You've got um, the city that's built with something they call elder glass that glows at night. And yeah, they talk about how it was built by aliens, basically. Yeah. Or, or beings that they don't understand that are long gone. Yeah, and they use the word aliens multiple times. It's right. not it's not like that's not our word. That's right. what Scott Lynch decided. <laughs> A liens. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll figure out later a little bit more what that means or get a better sense of it, but but that's There's not what also we are. almost like a touch of steampunk sort of a little bit vibe. You know, they talk about alchemy being used and that always makes me yeah, and there's at least kind of one device vibe. that's very, you know, gear-centric sort of thing, the the portable locks that they carry around. So I can see that. I can definitely see that. When was this written, do you recall? Like 2006, early 2000s. Okay, all right. Just trying to get a sense of kind of where that places it, you know, around other novels and things that we've read. Okay, fantastic. And book four is going to be coming out soon, right? I believe so. Yeah, it's supposed to be coming out like like in the next few months. And that's going to be the end of the series, right? Uh, no. Right? No. What What do you mean? <laughs> because we chose this because it was going to be a completed series. You chose Unlike it the because it was going to be a completed series. I just said it was a good series and you should read it. <laughs> I recall you saying the fourth book, the last book was coming I out. I said the fourth book is coming out. Damn it. <laughs> uh, 
All right, so here so, we... So, like, backstory there. <laughs> the Duke does not like to read series that are not completed yet. And uh, I just keep suckering him into ones that are not completed yet. You know, and there's a point at which, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me three times, I'm a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> Don't snarf your Capri Sun. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so I definitely, I definitely dig the setting. I dig the world building. I think he has a good style of world building. He, he gives you a good sense of what the world is right from the beginning, but without having to lay Robert Jordan tracts of yes. huge text out, yeah, you know, and describe every single thing that every single person is wearing. So, I, I really like the style as far as that goes so far. So, do you want to talk about kind of what happens in the prologue itself? Right. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit. So, the prologue is called "The Boy Who Stole Too Much," which I love, um, and it starts. The, the opening scene is when the thief maker of Camor pays a visit to the eyeless priest at the temple of Paralandro, and he's hoping to sell him the Lamora boy. Yeah, and and I don't get a sense yet. Is he seven at this point? I think he said it says he's five or six. Well, I know he's five or six when the thief maker found him, and this is supposed to be like two years later. But oh, right. So so yeah, seven or eight. Okay, gotcha. Okay, at this point, all I know is the book is called "The Lies of Locke Lamora." The title of the series is called "The Gentleman Bastards," and the first character we meet is the thief maker. So. Right. You get a sense that this is, this is not going to be Mary Poppins. Well, and then on page There's two... There's no a, hobbits and hidey holes. Sorry, go ahead. And then on page two, a priest drops an F-bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is... You, you get a sense right from the beginning that this is not... It's a little grimdark. A little bit. Just a touch. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, so the, first, the whole first section is the thief maker bringing the boy to the eyeless priest and saying, you know, he's one, he's selling another human, being. he's selling a child, you know, and he says, I either have to sell him to you for barely a profit at all, or I got to cut his throat and dump him in the river. Like, I'm glad I picked this book up. (laughs) So... Scott Lynch, the way he lays his narrative out is interesting, and it's different from what we're used to in the last series that we read, where there's a lot of jumping around to create tension. And I think in a lot of ways that could be done poorly, but it's not done poorly here. No, no, not at all. Right. So, for instance, right as the thief maker says, if you don't buy him, I'm going to have to slit his throat tonight, we cut away to a flashback to when two years earlier two years earlier Mm -hmm. so it kind of bounces back and forth a little bit but it's not done to needlessly create tension where there wouldn't be the story is already tense enough but it's i feel it's done very masterfully and i I like the way that it's done yeah it's not like deliberate cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger which can get tedious it can and the sections are short enough that you don't feel like you're being led along yeah, correct. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so we go from we go from that interaction with the eyeless priest to flashing back to when the thief maker found him as a part of a plague in what's called the Catchfire District, and it was you know plague was called the Black Whisper, brought to us by aliens, and they. <laughs> 
They quarantined everything, waited 11 days until everybody died, and then went in and rounded up the orphans that were left. So, yeah, this is definitely some nasty, nasty stuff. Right, and we right away we get a sense of what kind of person the thief maker is because I think it says something along the lines of he had paid the city watch to give him the best 30 yeah. of of the remaining orphans and that Locke wasn't even in that group. He snuck in Mm -hmm. and that the thief maker was not the kind of person who was going to turn up his nose at a free plague orphan. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, you get a sense too, I think from the way the thief maker speaks, you know, he has this sort of thing where he wants to use big words, but he he throws a lot of ums and ahs in there, and you get this sort of unique cadence to the way that he talks, and that he, later you get a little bit of a flashback into where he came from. Right, so basically the thief maker was a, a pickpocket with nine broken fingers who found himself at his bottom living in this graveyard with all these other ragged sort of orphan children, and he basically bullied them into a gang. Yeah. And taught them how to how to charm coats and how to break into houses. And through just force and nastiness, basically became a, a gang leader. Yeah. But he has this air, you know, and when we're when we're introduced to him gathering up the orphans and bringing them into Shades Hill, that's the the cemetery that they've overtaken you know he has this oh come my children these are your brothers these are your sisters you don't have to be orphans anymore you know he uses these big words and this appearance of being grand and gentle and kind but he's really a right bastard a right bastard he really is he really is so you know we learned that the rules of the orphans who live in what we call shades hill is that anyone who works eats Basically, these kids are are just sent out, and if they bring back stolen goods, then they get fed that night. So Locke, right away, shows that he is very good at stealing. In fact, the thief maker's first conversation with him, (laughs) he realizes that Locke has stolen the purse of the city guard who has brought him in. And so we find out that there's this thing called the secret peace, which is a, an unofficial contract between the city guard and the, the underworld. Mm-hmm. So we learn that Kamor apparently has a very structured well-established. and vast, well-established criminal underworld with, with serious rules. And number one is we don't steal from what they call the yellow jackets yeah. or the nobility. Basically we find out later that the nobility are off limits as well. Mm. So right away Locke has broken the secret piece. He's five. How the hell can he know any better? And so right away the thief maker is telling the story to father chains, who is the priest of Paralandro. And he says, so someone taught him how to charm a coat, but not to leave the city watch alone. And so that's a little bit of a mystery. Mm -hmm. And he tells Father Chains that, and this is one of my favorite quotes, if he had a bloody gash across his throat and a physiker was trying to sew it up, Lamora would steal the needle and thread and die laughing. Mm -hmm. So right away we get the image of this is a very precocious, very intelligent, very just irascible five-year-old that we're talking about who only becomes more irascible absolutely he doesn't he doesn't seem to get the the rules that are laid out before him and it's hard you you kind of can't fault him one he's five and two nobody's told him so 
how could you expect him to not understand the rules? You know, it's got to be confusing as hell for a child of that age to one say, okay, here are a bunch of rules that it's okay to break, but here are a bunch of rules it's not okay to break. So, but he doesn't seem to have, as the thief maker says, he doesn't have that reticence that a lot of the other orphans have where they have to get hungry enough, be, stick around enough to kind of realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to have to steal. I don't have a, or bully or something. I don't really have a choice in the matter. Lamora just takes to it. He has no issues with it at all. And Locke very quickly finds that he enjoys the theatrical aspect of what some of the thieves do. The way that the children are organized is that they have the, what they call windows, who are the housebreakers. Those are the, sort of the elite group. Mm-hmm. And the streets, who are the pickpockets. And the streets are divided into the clutchers, who are the ones who are more adept and actually able to pickpockets, and the teasers, who are will work as distractors. And he enjoys being a teaser. Even though that's considered the lowest rung on the totem pole, so to speak. And even though he clearly you know, came in there already a very adept pickpocket. He prefers to work as a teaser because it's more interesting. You know, he gets to to set up more grand operations by, you know, by doing that. And it actually pisses the thief maker off because he's so good at it that he distracts all the other thieves. They would rather watch him than actually go out and steal. Right. And he has to pull him aside and tell him to quit being such a celebrity. Mm, yeah. And just lay low for a little bit. One thing I thought was really interesting here is that in one of his teases, one of his schemes, when he's maybe six or seven, he stumbles into an inn and fakes having the Black Whisper. And the Black Whisper is a plague that, brought to you by aliens. Yes. (laughs) Aliens. That basically kills anyone who's an adult. So anyone who's a child gets sick, but will live through it, and adults will die. That's mm-hmm. This is the plague that brought Locke to the Thief Maker. Mm-hmm. So I thought that's very interesting that Locke, having just lived through the Black Whisper, being stuck, and it, it talks a little bit about what it must have been like for basically this section of the city came down with the Black Plague and was quarantined. Nobody allowed in or out until all the adults were dead. Yep. And so that was weeks and weeks. And most of the children. And most of the children died too. The ones who were strong enough formed little gangs and and did what they had to to survive. So this is something that Locke went through less than a year ago. And he still (laughs) has no problem putting on makeup to look like he has the Black Whisper. You know, this is just shows... This is a hard as nails kid. Yeah, his his moral compass is quite crooked. <laughs> Does not point north. He is chaotic. Chaotic. He's chaotic neutral. <laughs> well, I think ma- he's chaotic chaotic. We'll see. <laughs> Let's give him a little time. So yeah, there's a couple things I found interesting. You know, and I think the image that for me most clear in the prologue most clearly sets the stage for the type of society you're looking at is when they talk about them hanging the children. Right. You know, and they say that they would have weights tied to their ankles so that they could hang properly, you know, and it just, it sets the stage that this is a very callous and and a very class-structured society that you live in. You know, you get our first glimpses of anything 
fantastical at all when they talk about the ghost light, they talk about the elder glass, and they talk about alchemical bulbs, and these things seem to be fairly common, but we don't really have a full scope of exactly what it all means yet. But so we get always, you know, always in a new book looking for, okay, where's the fantasy element? And this is the first sort of inkling of that fantasy element that we get. The other thing that's interesting to me, and I'm trying to remember what section it happens in exactly. I think it's the fourth section of the prologue. Yep. Is when the thief maker is kind of explaining the rules and he pulls Lamora aside and he tries to kind of pick out from him whether or not he is an orphan. And I get the sense from Lamora that he's telling the thief maker that he's not an orphan. Did I miss something? I actually found that significant too. Enough so that I wrote it down. On page 12, he says, what's your name, boy? And he says, Lamora. And then he says, what else? And the boy seems to think deeply before he says, I'm called Locke after my father. And that just seemed significant to me that he stops and thinks deeply about it before Mm -hmm. he answers. And doesn't he in that section, because he says, you've been stealing for longer than just the plague. Right. I couldn't tell if what he was saying is that he's been... He wasn't orphaned as a part of the play. He's been an orphan for a lot longer than For that. a lot longer, yes. Okay. Yes. I, I couldn't tell if he was saying that or if he was saying that he actually wasn't an orphan at all. No, you're right. He doesn't actually say that he lost his parents. However, I think it's just implied that Okay. he lost his parents before that. Later, he does say that he's an orphan. So right. I was trying to find out if that was him lying or if it was just that I misunderstood it. I think it's more likely that I just misunderstood it. So a couple p- other characters that we meet, we meet Callow and Galdo, and we have reference to Sabetha. I think it's Sabatha. Sabatha, okay. The pronunciation, we're here in the beginning, the pronunciation is going to be way off. So unless Scott Lynch has a YouTube video telling us how to pronounce all those names like Patrick Rothfuss does, we're probably going to have some creative pronunciation going on. We also learn a little bit about the Kappa Barsavi, who appears to be sort of like the uh, the captain of the underworld. Right. Kappa Barsavi definitely seems to be like the crime boss. Yeah. And he seems to also be very entrenched in with the Kamori nobility and there. He seems to be almost a legitimate acknowledged yeah. Power. thing yeah, going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Locke is brought to finally brought to Father Chain's. Mm-hmm. who is the priest of Paralandro. And um, I, I love this character. Chains. Chains. Yeah. Um, you just, you get, a, you get a sense that he is bigger than life. He's a gangster. He's a gangster. <laughs> right. Um, he's, he marvels at his stage kills. And I think he says, you know, he wanted to hear the big man yell at him some more because he was <laughs> just so like magnificent in his yelling. So he brings yeah. up and, and Chains is um, standing there and he's got himself, himself, manacled to the to the church and Paralandro so this is a, a polytheic society and they have 12 gods and Paralandro is the god of orphans and lost souls I believe and this priest Father Chains has had chained himself to his temple and stands out there begging every day and it's it's rumored that he's blinded himself you know out of devotion to his god and 
the thief maker brings him, and we very quickly learn that that's a it's all a con. Yeah, it's all a ruse. And that Father Chains is is a priest, but he's a priest of the unnamed thirteenth god. And I think this is something that becomes very important in the book. And to me, it seems evident right away that Father Chains is a devout priest that he believes in the gods and he believes in the 13th god and the 13th god is the the father of necessary pretext or the crooked (laughs) warden the thief watcher and so he's the benefactor of thieves and so that's how father chains right away we see that he is a different kind of thief yes and that he steals with his brains and not with his brawn yeah i love it we would never we would never bend so low as to do hard work when a false face can gain us so much. I love that. Yes, <laughs> or something I love to that. that effect. Yeah. So, you know, the other other kind of hints that we get is that you know we we learn about gays addicts. So once again, we once again we have another one of these fantasy type drugs that's in the world. We also get the name uh, Duke Nicavante dropped on us, who appears to be the Duke of the of the city. The other thing that we find out is that the thief maker had to go and get permission to kill Locke. That he had to go and ask for permission to do it. Not only did he have to ask for permission, but he had to pay for the privilege of killing Locke. So when Locke is finally left in Father Chain's care, Father Chain's sort of Lays all this on him. This is in the next prologue. Do you want to go skip ahead to that, or do you want to try and stick? No, this is still in the first prologue. Is it? Okay, all right. The vi- the very end. Oh, he, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. He lets Locke know that the thief maker had purchased his death, the right to kill him, from... Kappa yep. Barasavi. From the Kappa, mm-hmm. and that the symbol of that was a shark's tooth in a leather pouch. And he tells him that now that he has the shark's tooth... Basically, whoever has the shark's tooth has the right to kill him at any moment. Yep. And he tells, Father Chains tells Locke that he doesn't know if he's going to kill him or not, and that Locke's going to have to explain to him the full story of what happened to get the thief maker in in the state that he's in. To trust him, yeah. And it's very interesting right away to compare these two characters, Father Chains and the thief maker. Um, the thief maker, one thing that stood out to me is when, when he was talking to the orphans, one of the things he said was, we have one thing in common. We have no mothers or fathers here, but we are all sisters or brothers. So even though he is much older and obviously in complete and total power over these children, he mm-hmm. does not try to become a father figure. No. There's nothing parental about him, and he doesn't even try that. Mm-mm. But right away... Chains is trying to tell Locke that he'd better not bullshit him and that there's only three people you can't bullshit only three people you can't bullshit and one of them is your mother and he says since your mother's dead I've taken her place and so right away we see that Chains is going to try and have that parental relationship with him mm-hmm. if Locke can convince him not to kill him yeah and then we kind of close out the prologue by finding out from Chains that Locke had two of the other orphans on the hill killed. More tits than wits. That one. (laughs) Not know what he's doing. He lacks the good sense that the gods gave a carrot. I know. I like that line, too. (laughs) I like that line, too. So now we start in chapter one. Now we start the book sort of in earnest. Not that we haven't already read 40 pages, but we begin the, you know, the, the kind of present day, quote, 
section of the book where we come up with Locke Lamora and his gang, and now they are much older. We think, you know, mid to early 20s is kind of what their age is now, and they're about some new caper. And I like that chapter one opens with a quote from Henry VI. Love it. I love it. And I love the opening sentence of the chapter as well. Uh, something something along the lines of, Locke Lamora's rule of thumb was this. Uh, oh, here it is. A good confidence game took three man- months to plan, three weeks to rehearse, and three seconds to win or lose the victim's trust forever. Yep. And so this con, he begins, he plans to spend that three seconds being strangled. Yeah. <laughs> by Callow. So they're they're set up in this alley with Callow and Galt, Galdo, the the twins that we met briefly mm-hmm. um in the prologue and they are pretending to strangle and beat up Locke and a new friend named Jean who we haven't met yet. So that's so, all we know. Yeah, at this point is it um is it Jean or Jean? Don't do that to me. What do you mean? I've been pronouncing it Jean in my head. <gasps> what? No, it's Jean. It has Jean? to be. Jean? It can't be Jean. It's Jean. Jean Tannen. Jean Tannen, that's bullshit. What? Listen, I have to tell you something. Jean Tannen is probably the number one spot in my fictional harem. Really? He is, yes. You like the big men, huh? I, you know I do. <laughs> <laughs> So when it comes to pronouncing his name, I think that gives me an edge. 16 stones of Gene Tannen coming at you. <laughs> My name's Gene. I drive the barge. Don't you just stop. <laughs> stop it. Come on, Locke. <laughs> Not ruin this for me. Get that gentle horse on this barge. We got to go, son. Damn it. <laughs> that's what i think of when i hear gene tannen <laughs> not just a southern accent but a bad one <laughs> it's not jean though it's definitely jean tannen all right we can fight about this you know what we have listeners they will please chime in they will let us know what was our code word that we were going to use when we start arguing about something pointlessly and it's making the podcast drag on too long how could we have forgotten? I can't remember. What was the code word? Oh, that's a good... Kumquat? Quatrain? Cubert? Paradiddle? Sasquatch? Mud muffin? <laughs> it was persipatious. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Now it sounds like you're just going down on a dictionary. <laughs> ludicrous all right so back to the con of don salvar and we don't and we don't want to go through it blow by blow but this is kind of where we set the stage and we find out what they're doing they're trying to set this guy up at this stage we don't really know what they're setting him up for but they know that he goes to this church uh, this temple every I guess Sunday or Saturday, I think it is, in their world, and they're trying to stage this thing so that when he comes out, lo and behold, they'll be in distress, and he'll want, you know, he'll run in and save them and kind of set the stage, and they have this lookout bug who is going to kind of be the person to flag everything down, and he 
sees that the guards are coming, manages to distract them, and they enable enables them to kind of go ahead and meet with this guy, have their first touch, and gain his confidence. And we get to see them all swap in and out of different costumes and disguises and change their personalities and their accents and it's all very cool but there's this unsettling thing that keeps happening all throughout this chapter and it's that there's this black shape that is like zooming by leaping over buildings running around that you know it comes up three times in this chapter towards the middle part of as soon as the con starts kind of happening and then again at the very end of the chapter so clearly something of significance and i'll give my prediction at the end nice yeah i agree and i i love the way that scott lynch sets up this scene because we we open with a scene of Locke being strangled fake strangled yeah with a rope even though that's not no self-respecting thief would use anything other than a garret you know and then we jump to a few hours before where we kind of meet Gene and Bug, who are talking about the details of the plan, and Bug is promising, I'm not going to screw it up. I'm not going to screw it up. And then we kind of cut to Bug screwing it up. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then we jump back. And and, jump uh, forward, and, yeah. and Bug does that by, so the whole plan hinges on the city watch not walking by the alley where Gene and, and Locke are pretending to be beaten up. And Bug's whole job is to give a signal if that happens or distract anyone who walks by. And when he sees the city watch walking by, even though he was told, if that happens, we just run like hell. Yeah. He instead jumps off a roof and lands in front of them in a spectacular bloody mess Uh and then proceeds to, when they bend over to see how he is, snakes their... (laughs) the purse of the city watchman uh, taunts him and then hits him with what's called an orphan's twist, which is basically a little sack full of really homemade mace, but basically homemade mace and then runs for it. And they all chase off after him. And the, the one city watchman is stumbling around like he's drunk. And it's just, it's just a spectacular scene. You can just see it all playing out in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing too is so towards the end of the chapter, we get placed in the head of Don Silvara. Him coming out of the church, he hears the alarm in the background. He sees the one guardsman kind of rolling around and stumbling, assumes that the guardsman is drunk. Now, apparently, the yellow coats don't go down in this area very often. It was, it was They didn't expect them to be there. It was sort of like a you know worst-case scenario that they would be around. And then, you know, Don Savara walks past this alley, sees these people getting beaten. You there, man, you know, runs in and I've got my stiletto, three feet of steel, three of throat and, you know, all this hullabaloo. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, and I should be because I've, I know what's happening, but I'm thinking to myself, these are an awful lot of coincidences that you come here every, you know, Saturday at noon and this has never happened. Isn't there something that would like sort of tingle your spidey sense and be like, hmm, this does, this seems strange. But nope, nothing strange, you know, jumps right on in there, right on in, you know, into the ruse. And I, what I love about Don Salvara is Scott Lynch, I feel like, talks a lot about greed and corruption. And even though Don Salvara is obviously about to be duped magnificently. Mm-hmm. It's hard to feel sorry for him because he is so proud. He's so greedy. I don't feel sorry for him at all. And I'll get more into why that is in chapter two. 
No, I, I agree. But it's just interesting that, and, and I, I think there's a really significant scene that happens right after. So we, we cut away. We've got Bug and Jean coming up the river. They pick up Locke. They meet up with Callow and Galdo, and they are getting ready to go to their hotel to transform themselves into these characters that they're going to use to to run this con and Locke stops for a minute and he looks around at this. They're in the rich part of town now. Yeah. And he's like, I just love this town. It's, it's practically made for robbing. And <laughs> the love of larceny is a central part of all of these characters, you know? And I, I think at one point where they're talking about bug and he's a 12 year old kid and it said something about the larcenous part of his heart, which, which was the greater part admittedly was the greater <laughs> part. Yeah. So, well, I like, too, that um, Jean says, so we're the robbers of the robbers, but we're the robbers of the robbers pretending to be robbers of other robbers. <laughs> Did I steal that line from you? Well, I was going to work up to it, but basically that's yeah. what I was uh, about to, to talk about. This scene was... Damn it. I stole your line. <laughs> that's okay. I stole all that thunder. What's What's important about Just it... Just remember... Aliens. <laughs> What's important, though, is I think the the morality thing really comes out here. And when you look at what sort of characters these guys are, because they're not bad guys, they're not out there, they're not evil or malicious characters, but they're also not the noble thief character mm, either. Yeah, they're yeah. not. They're not Robin Hood. They're not trying to right injustice. No, they they're out because they legitimately like what they're doing. They're happy to exploit the shit situation that is Kimura. Right. And so what comes out in that scene too is the the fact that they're not supposed to be doing what they're doing. Not just because it's against the law, but it's also against the underworld law yeah. to target the nobility of this town. So he's got to pretend, they're pretending to be normal thieves, but they're actually running these cons, which in part would explain why the Don may have been taken in so easily. Because if this is a world where con artists aren't a thing, this is like a, yeah. a new sort of robbery that's that's coming about. That's true, Maybe yeah. he wouldn't expect it. Well, yeah, and if you think about, we met the thief maker, and what they do is, you know, it's kind of street level petty larceny, petty burglaries, things of that nature. I mean, he talks about go steal a sausage, you know. They're trying to steal food to eat. And then we've got the eyeless priest, Chains, who he's out there pretending to be a priest so he can basically, you know, beg for alms. And that's, you know, as though he's supporting a church when really he's just supporting some thieves. That's his way. He just kind of steals with his mouth, you know. And Locke has taken this to a whole new level, which perhaps this world has never seen this level before. And the rules of the underworld... If they've kind of prevented it, uh, maybe I can give Don Silvar a little bit of a pass for falling for this. Still don't like the cat. And it's all done so masterfully that it's really exciting. So we see Locke transform into this character, Lucas Fairright, who is a Vadran merchant. Mm -hmm. And it's described um, that, that he comes out and Locke is described as being average in every dimension. There's nothing memorable about him. And he's, I just. His he's hair like, was the color of dust. Yes. He's, he's Gary Oldman all over the place. Gary you know? Oldman's not remarkable? No, because, no, because he like transforms in his different roles. Don't you think? I, I don't know. Like Gary Oldman's my favorite actor. I feel like you just put him down. No, I really didn't. You have to pop your peas. Sorry, that's when he was on Friends. It's, it's I know. Never mind. I know. 
I know he was on Friends. Uh, let's see. Anyway, watching this con go off is a thing of beauty. So Locke is described as an average in every way person. But because of that, he is able to transform into this character and that every vestige of, of who Locke Lamora was is melted away. And he's just become this uptight, prissy merchant wearing a heavy wool coat in the hot Kamori sun. And he is um, just the way he talks transforms. So he and um, and Jean turn turn into these other characters who, and they, they joke about how they, they're suffering from a case of being fictional, which yeah. is pretty hilarious. <laughs> the banter in this section is really great. It is quite good. And it's just wonderful how he even, the, the language that he has learned, he is able to speak Vadran yeah. well enough to fool the Don, whose mother was Vadran, mm -hmm. is able to contrive this encounter with him that is going to let the Don feel that he is in his debt and then asks the Don to help him meet someone else that he, that is named Don Jacobo, who is Don Salvaro's greatest enemy because he's got a business proposition for him. Of course, that leads Don Salvaro to want to invite him come to my barge tomorrow. I want to hear this business proposal, mm -hmm. you know, and it is all just wrapped up so tidily, you know, and, and I love that Locke is even, I feel rubbing his nose in it when he says, oh, that you should save my life here, that you should speak Vadrin and that we should share a common business interest. It's uncanny. Yeah, exactly. You know? No, it's well put together. And the Don and Lamora have one thing in common. They're both half Vadrin. We don't really know what Locke's parentage is. Mm. The, I think it's told that, that he looks sort of Vadrin, sort of Theron. Can't really tell. Well, we yeah, I mean, that's true. The, the, the thief maker says his blood is half Theron, half Vadrin. But, you know, how the hell would he know that? I think that's just sort of his looks. He's sort of, you can't really tell what race he could come from anywhere. Yeah. So but he's able some, to play all these different parts. Yeah. So what's your favorite line? In chapter one. I love this part. So at the very end, you know, Bug runs off. The city watches chased him. Uh, the, the older members of the Gentleman Bastards know that something went wrong, but they don't know what. So they scatter to these different rendezvous points to wait for word of him. And eventually, Callow and Galdo are in this doorway. And this man comes up with his barrel on a cart. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> And he says, I was told that I you would you would pay me if I deliver this barrel to you. And they're like, Yeah, what's in the what's in the barrel? And he says, Well, it's not a very polite boy. Yeah. But it's also not wine. And so, you know, Bug has convinced him to uh bring him there in this barrel. And then uh Callum and Galdo are about to get him out when they when he tells them that he also stole the barrel maker's purse yeah. while he was in the barrel. Just and they're like what is wrong with you? And he says, uh, well, Locke would appreciate it. And Callow and Galdo say, the four most fatal words in the Theron tongue are, Locke would appreciate it, rivaled only by, Locke taught me a new trick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they say, the only person who gets away with Locke Lamora games is Locke Lamora, because we think the gods are saving him up for a really big death. <laughs> <laughs> Something involving hot knives. Yeah. <laughs> so what about you? What's your... Favorite. So I got a couple. I love the jokes about the fish poisons and lucky me not being a fish. Right. But my favorite is when when they have this gentled horse and they're trying to get him on a barge and he's just impossible to move around. 
And I, f- I think it's Callow says, I've named the horse. I've called him impediment. <laughs> the dialogue he's, is he's so good snappy. for a flying buttress or perhaps a table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, there's re- the, the writing is very clever in that regard. Very and clever. So, so did we talk about the gentle animals when we were talking about the supernatural elements? No, there? we didn't. And, and I wasn't quite sure how to take it. At first, I thought, you know, we talk about the white eyes, and I was like, okay, is it, has it been blinded? But it seems to stare and look. So I thought, okay, well, it's not blinded. So I didn't, I didn't know what it meant. I think it's, it's just something they can do to an animal that takes its, like will away like it'll it'll stand it'll walk where you take it it'll eat and drink and stuff but it won't you have to lead it everywhere it's yeah. it's like become brainless basically yeah yeah that's what it seems like yeah all right so now the second or the first interlude i guess because the other was a prologue right so we've got an interlude which is back to Locke's conversation with father chains right after he has been brought there by the thief maker Mm -hmm. and father chain says i will keep you i won't kill you if you can explain to me with no bullshit what happened that the thief maker had to ask for your death and so the interlude is Locke explains and he starts off by saying i i loved this part he starts off by saying it was an accident you know and and father chain says I'm sorry. I thought what you said was I'm a useless little cuss and I, and I want to be thrown off this bridge right now. Yeah. And, you know, then he proceeds to explain that he meant to get the boys in trouble. He didn't think that the thief maker would kill them. Right. So basically what happened was there were some older boys who had been picking on the younger kids in the gang, uh, not going out to work, stealing their things, doing things to them, saying things to them. And Locke was angry and he knew he couldn't fight them. So he set him up and he stole a white iron coin, which is a lot of money, and hid it in this boy's room and then told the thief maker that he had seen the boy with all of this money. And the thief maker found it and then killed not only this boy, but his best friend. And the um, father chains at that point says, do you realize where you fucked up? Like, do you want me to tell you? And do you want me to tell you why all of your friends who helped you with this scheme are probably going to be dead as well? And that's where that interlude ends. It brings an interesting question to me, which is why did the thief maker have to pay for his death and get it approved when we have clear evidence that he can kill these orphans whenever he wants to. He had to pay for all of the deaths. Mm, Where's that reference? I don't remember that. Uh, no, he mentions the fact that he went and, and got paid for the privilege, paid f- to be able to kill the other two boys as well. Mm, okay, all right. No, it does It does say that in there. So he's going to go pay to kill all the other young orphans? Because it ends with him saying, you know, everybody who helped you is going to be dead before the, before the night is out. So he had to go and pay to kill like 15, 20 orphans? Well, because what Father Chains explains was that the thief maker's position is tenuous. He is living there in this hill with 
scores of children, some of them teenagers, who could easily overrun him and kill him. Yeah. The only thing he has is this illusion of power, an illusion of authority over them. Yeah. And any tiny threat to that, if anyone suspects that that he's been manipulated or or does not have that power in any way, he's done. Yeah. So that's why it was worth it to him to go and buy all of those deaths in order to keep his position position of power. Also, it doesn't sound like he had to pay a whole lot to kill a few orphans. It doesn't seem like it, no, for sure. It's interesting because if he's so willing to just kill these people haphazardly, just just going to kill 15 orphans, then why does he bother to sell him for such a little profit to the eyeless priest? You know, and, and it seems to address it in the text. It says, I'd rather have some profit than no profit. Right. Like it's as simple as arithmetic to him. Right. But that seems strange because you would you would think that he could have done the same, he could have sold the, the other ones off too. Except that what we learn, and if you kind of read the subtext a little bit, it sounds like Father Chains has asked the thief maker to look for specific very things. specific characteristics. Yeah. And right away, he says, he has all the things that you've told me to look for. Yeah, true. You know, and, and the thief maker, I think, is sort of the trainer and, and the gangs like recruit their mm-hmm. their members from him. And they're all probably looking for different things. But he knows that Father Chains is looking for someone who doesn't look Theron or or Vadran, sort yeah. of easy to mix in with either mix in with yeah. anyone, you know, skill for stealing, seems to love stealing. All these things is what. He's but, looking for. Yeah, but not so much like just a raw pickpocket. Somebody who's got a little bit more intelligence and a little more crafty can use words and things of that nature. Right. So, okay. That jives. Savvy? Savvy. So, chapter two? Yes, and chapter two is called Second Touch at the Teeth Show. I got three words. Lay mommy. Cool boat, dude. <laughs> it is a cool boat. It's a cool boat, man. So Don Salvara has a floating orchard. That's the shit, man. It is. It's pretty damn awesome. Shame it's only going to last for about 20 years before the roots in those trees start to eat away at the hull and have to <laughs> create a new It's boat. okay because they have alchemy. I guess so. That's kind of going to be the answer. Yeah. <laughs> we have alchemy. The, the roots don't grow. Whatever, alchemy. Yes. Whatever, aliens. Cinnamon lemon, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so the scene is at the Floating Revel, which now apparently Camor is a city of, with lots of canals, and they've got this sort of central waterway where they have a marketplace, a floating marketplace, and once a month they, they shut it down and they have a, a set of floating sort of circus. And they have all Was these... it in the marketplace that this was done? I think so. I got the sense that it was further out away, um, right next to the city, but not in the marketplace, because they say that the marketplace is only a half mile in circumference, which it seems to me would not be large enough to hold the revel. But I, but I do remember them saying that there was once per month that they didn't hold a market. Okay, no, it says here in section two, once per month, there was no trading done in the shifting market. 
Every fourth Idler's Day, the merchants stayed clear of the great sheltered circle abutting the Angevine River. Instead, they drifted or anchored nearby while half the city came out to see the shifting revel. Okay. So it's it seems like it's in the same place. Okay. Either way. It's not that important. Yeah. What matters is giant floating circus. Gi- yeah. Floating circus of death. Floating circus, circus of, of death. death. <laughs> you there. Clowns or death. <laughs> so what I love here is how we what we see the second touch. Cake, please. Of this game. And um, it's. It's set against the backdrop of this floating revel where basically people are being fed to and fighting sharks and demon fish. Giant and it's a, squi- there are torsos flying through the air. It's it's just madness. And so it really like ups the tension. And there are a couple of places where it cuts so neatly. You know, just oh, as a, yeah. a crucial thing happens in the game, the demon fish finishes eating the last of its people and yeah it's just really nice storytelling it's really well written in in terms of you know and this is particularly you can see it at the very end of the chapter where the things that are going on in the back are echoing kind of what's happening in the game sort of like you you said but it also paints this this real to me this real bright picture of just how callous fucked up these people are because this whole thing is for their entertainment and their entertain you know people just being cut in half and eaten up they barely pay any attention to it you know it's like having golf on in the background you know while they sit and they they do this thing oh somebody's torso flew around whatever would you like some more chilled prawns you know like and like <laughs> fuck you like well even more so it seems evident that that the don and his wife use the floating rebel as a way to try and discomfit lucas fairright who they think is this uptight stuffy merchant so they're yeah. doing everything they can to play him to put him off balance they want to put him off balance so right as they're this giant squid is just it's it's talks about how it's it's floating in a sea of red there are body parts floating it's like this boiling pool of blood basically mm-hmm. and they hand him a bowl of tomato soup yeah. with prawns floating in it and they're more soup you yes. know yeah um they're doing everything they can to put him off balance and the donia is trying to flirt with him periodically and even though we find that throwing blondes at lock lamora was not unlike throwing lettuce, lettuce at, at sharks shark. whatever yes. that means well sharks aren't really into lettuce oh is that what that means yeah okay <laughs> He doesn't like blondes, people. He's not into blondes. He has a very peculiar taste. He does. So, so they're doing everything they can. Well. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. So, they're doing everything they can to set him off balance because they think he has a business proposition for their rival. Mm-hmm. That proposition ends up having to do with Ostershallen brandy. It does, yeah. And while he's there, he drinks a ginger scald. And the ginger skull burns his lips and burns his gums and burns his teeth. And I'm like, so it's like Coke Zero, right? <laughs> Fucking pussy. I had three of those before we podcasted. <laughs> so yeah, the whole ruse, you know, comes down to Brandon. And of course, you know, Locke knows that this guy is a huge lover of this brandy, you know, from this this house that he's put to Bell Altar. Is that what it is? Bell Austeria. Bell Austeria. 
Bell Alstare. He's pretending to be a, a member of the house. So he knows this guy is really into it, not to mention it's highly, highly coveted. And there's all these political tensions going on in this area in Vadrin. And he plays it up as though, but what you don't know is that they're getting ready to rebel against the leadership. And, you know, we're going to we're going to lose everything. But I've got a way that we can sneak 6,000 casks, the entire remaining inventory of this brandy out of the city under the guise of it being beer. And then we can corner the market on it. And these cask of brandy which sell for already exorbitant prices no one will be able to get for the next 25 years because we'll have to replant the vineyards and think of how much money you'll be able to make you know and he sells them on this dream and they just he knows just how to speak to him because she you know is this alchemist botanist who is very enamored of their vineyards and the way they do these things and he is very in love with the brandy and they're both greedy as fuck and they all they see is dollar signs and just plays right into it just just as the shark tricks the uh the amazon warrior with the hammer you know and she doesn't see it coming these people don't see it coming and Locke is like a shark and he's gonna eat him up and I believed it like partway through the chapter. I'm like, wow, that's a really good way for them to make some money. And like at the end, I was like, oh, wait, there's actually none of that is real. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it. but he, he puts it out there in a way that's so believable, even though we know it's all lies. And, and apparently he mixes in a good deal of what's actually going on. Yeah. There's only very little bullshit going on in there. And most of it is is things that are actually happening. He just tweaked a few details so that it would be believable so that there's a reason that this guy has to hand over 25,000 crowns to him. As they're going on and they're trying to put him on the back foot and they're having trying to have these negotiations amidst all this human misery in the backdrop that they're completely oblivious to. I'm like, I hope you take him for everything. <laughs> so the best part of this mm. is is at the end. So he they finally they've negotiated, they've spent hours, they're they're watching all of this um all of these these fights against sharks and everything and they finally stand up and they shake hands and right as that happens is when one of the country Kel- yeah try that one again <laughs> contrarachiellas that's my best that's the best contrarachiella contrarachiella maybe maybe something like that not easy something like that one of the gladiator women gets sharks and amazons dude gets beaten by a shark and donna sophia says God's unbelievable, taken in so fast by such a simple trick. Mm-hmm. Well, my father used to say that one moment of misjudgment at the revel is worth 10 at any other time. Mm-hmm. And Locke bows deeply and says, I doubt him not at all, Donna Sophia, not at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a couple things that I liked and wanted to kind of bring up. So one of my favorite parts in this is the 559. Right, so explain that a little bit more. So they number the vintages of the brandy, and then they age them for at least seven years. And so the 559 is like, you know, it's like the 2018 Jaguar, you know, that that nobody's, or I guess 2019 now, you know, it's nobody's, it's, it's, you know, there are only prototypes. It's, no one's ever touched it, you know. And 
first to set the stage, he brings out a vintage of the 502, which is an especially good year, and people have been buying them and hoarding them, and it's worth, that cask alone is worth a fortune, and they're stunned to have it. And then he says, oh yeah, by the way, I also brought you this one that no one's ever seen, you know? And they so want to believe it that when he gives them cheap brandy mixed with rum, they're like, (laughs) It's delicious. <laughs> it's amazing. Sacrilegious. Oh my goodness. It's, you know, they're swirling it in their cups. They're watching the legs, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, this is like Wine Spectator. It's all bullshit. <laughs> it's all bullshit. But they believe it because they want to believe it. Right. You know? And I just, I love that part. I loved it. And that just goes to show how much Locke and his band, they know people. Yeah. You know, and they're just a cut above any other kind of criminal. They know this guy down to his every Piccadilly, you know, and they know what's going to motivate him. They know what's going to motivate her. They know his routine. And they just, they've studied him, obviously, and practiced and practiced. Um, One part that I really loved is where at one point in a conversation, it says that um, Locke uses a particularly wry and endearing smile. He'd once practiced before, before a mirror glass for weeks. Yeah. And it really made me think of King Killer Chronicles and Quoth, because that's something that that the number character, three bow? Yeah, yes. <laughs> he has all these sort of bows and smiles cataloged. And at one point in uh, the King Killer Chronicles, Quoth takes a, st- a, a guy smiles at him in a smarmy way and he files it away and then he uses it later. Mm-hmm. So it's just, that's very entertaining. And there are a lot of ways that this book reminds me of that. Yeah, the characters are, I mean, they're similar in that regard, particularly in their the way that, you know, each of them sort of practice their triggery and, and things of that nature. One of the things I do like about this and like about these characters, probably a little bit more than quote, at least at this stage, is... We we know from the beginning that that's what these people are, that they are liars and thieves for the sake of it. You know, where with Quoth, his his situation was a lot more muddy, and his motivation was a lot a lot more. It was trickier to put your finger on. You know, was he a good character? Was he not a good character? That's also what made Quoth such an interesting character. You know, although it was, I struggled with it at first. It took me a while to kind of pick up on that. And these guys I kind of like right away. It took me a while to figure that out with Quoth. Right. There's definitely not that ambiguity of, is this a morally gray character? Is he a good character? These characters are pretty much on the outset. They're criminals. They're thieves. They're not doing it because they're don't have any other choice. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have they have a love of what they do and they're they're masters at it. Yeah. So it's something very very fun about just watching them yeah, absolutely. do what they do. Absolutely. The other thing I really like and and I kind of caught it in the in the second chapter is how Scott Litch uses language that's full of meiosis and euphemism and it's sort of in contrast with the setting that really seems to to downplay its own nastiness and cruelty. Mm-hmm. You know, so the language is such that, you know, they've got this sort of cool hip, you know, I'm going to downplay, you know, what's really going on in this society that wants to sort of ignore how incredibly cruel they are. So I kind of like that 
prosody that's created where the language and the way he's using the language kind of echoes what you see in the world building. Meiosis. Who's going down on a dictionary now? See, uh, <laughs> I did that on purpose. I was, wait, I was trying to get... Not really. All right. Do you have any other things for, for these chapters so far? Um, one thing I noticed, so I, I just really love looking at all of the different subtle ways that Locke in particular and, and all of the gang works this con. Um, a couple of things I picked up on this time that I, that I hadn't noticed before. One is that when Locke is on the barge, he does something that it's called mirroring. It's a manipulation technique where he starts mimicking the Don's gestures. Yeah. Not like right after he does it, but just the gestures that the Don tends to make. And that's a way of getting people to like you. Oh, yeah. So all these different little little subtle ways that they that they go about pulling off this con and that that I picked up on more this time around. It's pretty groovy. Oh, and I, and I liked that um how many times I, I picked up on the Don and the and the Donna talking about the twelve gods or using twelve gods yeah, as a, yeah. oh twelve gods and 12 we know gods, that the black table that uh Locke believes in the thirteenth god mm-hmm. and that must have just been very amusing to him I felt like one of the other things you get you get a real sense of and I really like the world building f- for what I've read so far but you get a real sense of just how old this city is. And how kind of deep and established these social norms and settings are. And they talk about this is the seventh the seventy-seventh year of Sendavana or whatever. I don't remember all the names, but this is the seventy-seventh year of that. And the next year was the seventy-seventh year of something else. Right. And so what I gather is that these are the years of the twelve different gods, I'm assuming. Oh yeah. And so if that's true then it's been at least 76 full cycles, which we did the math on. That would be 912 years. So this city is at least 912 years old at a minimum. And, and we know it's more than that, in fact. But if, you know, if that calendar kind of holds true. So this is a this is a deeply entrenched society. Yes, and I love that it's built on the bones of something even older yeah. and more mysterious. And I love that in world building when there's layers, but it's not put out there in a lot of exposition. There are just kind of hints at this older society. Yeah, like in the very first couple of pages, they talks about, you know, walking past a glass bridge. And I was like, it's not really a glass bridge. They just call it the glass bridge. No, no, it's 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 actually a crystalline, clear bridge. It's not made of glass, alien but it's glass made of bridge. alien glass. Aliens. <laughs> you guys can't see, but he's making a humorous hand gesture there. Aliens, dude. <laughs> I found this. Did I ever tell you about the the humorous thing that Patrick Rothfuss said about the lies of Locke Lamora? No. Well, he wrote a funny... Um, review on Goodreads as well. But I think someone asked him if Quoth and Locke Lamora got together, would they, how would that, what would happen? Yeah. And he said, if Quoth and Locke got together in the right circumstances, I think they would get along. I actually think they'd like each other in a reserved professional sort of way. And then he said, here's a key piece of dialogue from their conversation. <laughs> Locke, you know, for a thief, you're one hell of a performer. Quoth, Thanks. As a performer, you're one hell of a thief. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so I thought that was pretty funny, and I and I do think it's interesting to continue to parallel the two characters. So, are you ready for predictions? Yes. What do you think is going to happen? All right, I got it. I got a handful of predictions this time. So we'll see. We'll see. My first prediction is surrounding the dark shape that shows up in chapter one. Yeah, what's up with that dark shape? So that dark shape is a girl. Okay. She's making... It's really hard, you guys. Faces are being made. I'm not. I'm, I'm just drinking this tea right here. Eyebrows are raising. I'm not. Nope. It, okay, girl, please go on. It's a girl. <laughs> so now so now I'm like, no, it's not a girl. <laughs> it, it, it totally is a girl. You guessed it. Good job. Sorry, keep going, keep going. So I think it's a I think it's a girl, and I think it's another thief mm-hmm. who is spying on them mm-hmm. to try to see what's going on. Mm. And I think this is the love interest. Mm. So so prediction number one is the dark shape is another thief who I think is a so is it is another thief trying to break them up or spy on them or take advantage. Okay. Prediction number two is that it. It's also the love interest. Mm-hmm. I think the love interest is going to be another con artist. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be a dirty, rotten scoundrels type of situation where they don't realize it mm-hmm. at first. And then, you know, things are going to go south that way. Also, the love interest is going to have hair that at some point will be described as raven colored mm-hmm. or dark as ink. Because mm-hmm. she's going to mm-hmm. be a Why dark. Why do you think that? Because he doesn't like blondes. He has a peculiar interest. That's true. You know, it's like throwing lettuce to sharks. So I think that, I think also that his real name is not Locke Lamora. Hmm. I think that the uh, Barangius twins Mm -hmm. are going to be a part of the ruse. Mm -hmm. So they'll show up later. I don't know where or why. Mm -hmm. I also, this is the tough one. But I'll say it. I don't think the con's going to go down the way they planned it. Mm-hmm. Something's going to go wrong at the end of this con. Now, I could also see a scenario where this con goes completely off as without a hitch, but then something happens that screws them after the fact. But but my I'm going to stick with saying my prediction saying that this does not go down the way they intended to go down. Something's going to derail it from from happening. I got some questions, too. Those are really good predictions, by the way. Thank you. dubs. I said the dark shape is a girl, and you went... I did not. (laughs) Your eyes said... (laughs) You know what? That was very... It was very perspicacious of you. Ah, okay. (laughs) People are going to need a thesaurus to listen to this episode. That was... the. I hope I'm using that word right. I hope so. I think so. The... The dark shape thing was peculiar because the way Bug in particular described it, Mm -hmm. he said a dark shape, sleek, beautiful, and heavy. And I'm thinking, okay, something big, sleek, and beautiful. And then he says, like a bird, maybe a gull. And then I'm like, okay, not human. (laughs) Like, because I was thinking another thief or somebody spying on them. And then he says, a gull and i'm like gulls are tiny 
you know, and then he said it moved like a crossbow. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck is going on? So it could also 100% not even be a person. But to me, the only thing that makes sense is that it's a person. So that's what I'm saying. So I also have a question. Okie doke. Don't answer it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so who taught him how to steal? That's a very good question. I mean, did he really just teach himself? That's a good one. Mm, we'll see. Would you like to hear some questions from our listeners? Yes. So we have some questions from our listeners. So the first couple of questions are from Adam. Adam is on Twitter at LFC Adam 88185 And he says, I'd like to describe this to other people as Oliver Twist meets Ocean's Eleven. Savvy? I'm savvy. Yeah. I'm down with that. Yeah, I think it's a good way of describing it, particularly mm-hmm. the way the narrative cuts from, jumps around in time. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of gives you, you're getting the setup while you're getting the story, which is, you know, how Ocean's Eleven is also sort of mm-hmm. filmed. So I definitely, I definitely think that makes sense. I, I like that description. He also says, what's worth more, a talent or a soul one? Ugh, that's tricky. I know. Talking about crossover currency comparisons. We get deep into this shit here. <laughs> I'm gonna need to make a table. <laughs> I'm going on I'm going out on a ledge and I'm saying a Solon's worth more. I Yeah, I'd say that too. Yeah. All right. So Theo, uh, who is at the OGB, says Elderglass. Aliens? Or some sort of weird precursor races technology that they left behind? What do you think? I mean, the aliens joke is funny, and he does say alien several times. He specifically said, uses the word alien, yeah. But I feel like it's going to be a precursor. Uh, yeah. Like some kind so. of other, maybe elves or something, some kind of magical race. Yeah. Um, I, I, But I think that for sure they're, they're definitely meant to be described as someone who, something that's, that doesn't seem human. It's nothing like what they have or what they've built. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, this seems to me like very much like a fantasy post-apocalypse world, like Mm -hmm. built on the bones of some great cataclysm, you know, and a thousand years later, they've built up this, you know, very intricate society on the bones of something that was a much greater society than them. So it definitely has that vibe to it. He says, why doesn't the thief maker just kill Lamora? And... I think it comes down to, for me, that it's simple math for him. It's just arithmetic. I don't know that I like that, and it wouldn't at all shock me if we find out more later that gives us more insight into that. But from what I can tell, that's the only thing that seems to jive. I think that's definitely the main reason. It does say that as Locke is walking into the temple, the thief maker kind of pats him on the shoulder. I don't think he enjoys killing children. It's sort of a necessary part of what he has to do to stay where he is. But I think given being able to profit a little bit and having the the child live is he would rather do that. Yeah. You know, and I think it also fosters, you know, it it sounds to me like the thief maker, you know, trains these kids. and, And like I said, kind of, sends him off to the other gangs as appropriate and that he he's he gets a benefit in his relationship with Father Chains if he sends him someone that's useful to him. Yeah. So that's kind of helps him with it where he is in the Kamori underworld. Yeah, that makes sense. And that kind of goes into the next question, which is, 
you know, what he says, what happens to the old, to the older kids, what happens to the older children, you know? And I think he thinks that they're being killed off. Do you think they're being killed off? Well, I'm certain some of them are, but it also seems like some of them are being sent to other gangs because yeah. we know that Callow and Galdo, and I think it mentions at one point even Gene was part of the Thief Makers crew and um, get brought along to to the Gentleman Bastards. Yeah, I, that's kind of what I think, too. I, I mean, for sure, he does not want to be surrounded by a bunch of, you know, 19-year-old, 20-year-old thieves like that he does not want that so it would not at all shock me if some of them are simply being killed off it wouldn't shock me if some of them are being set up to be hung you know to get rid of them but i would i would say again that i don't think that's only if he can't find another use for them i think he's going to try to send them off to other gangs ship them off other places you know, to build kind of his own political alliances. So I don't think it's quite as morbid as they get to a certain age and he just kills them all off. I don't think that's what's happening. And then his last question is, uh, where is Sabetha? How does it Sabatha? In my head, I've always said Sabatha. But you also said Jean, so I'm not sure I can take that. We are smiling at each other, guys. <laughs> don't so, worry. Mommy and Daddy love each other very much. <laughs> you didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> no, I mean it's a good it's a good question, and there's no real evidence for us to to know at this point. And uh, any listeners who, by the way, have the audio books, feel yeah. free to chime in on these pronunciations. Yeah, because we we'll, we will butcher them until you tell us the right way to we say it. We will. Yes, we will do it. Okay, so I wanted to let people know we got a new iTunes review and to thank Benny 333333333 for sending us a new iTunes review that says the Duke and Duchess are very engaging and entertaining to listen to. They break down and analyze the name of the win in full depth and help me understand the deeper meaning and subtlety of the book. I highly recommend you listen to them. Good job, guys, and keep up the great work. Why, thank that's an awesome review. Isn't it? It's a good one. Thank you. Okay. What? All right. Fine. I looked it up on Twitter. Yeah. Scott Lynch says... It's Jean. Yes. As in Jean Valjean. And now I have to start the book over. I, I, I. <laughs> Come I, on down yeah. to Gene Tannins. <laughs> we got pole boats. Yeah. We got V-hulls. We got flat <laughs> bottoms. Come on down to the swamps. Going to get you some gator meat. <laughs> Gene Tannins. Damn it. This changes everything. Now you got to kick him out of your harem. I don't know. Jean is just not a very manly name. All right. I mean, I don't know. You do have Jean Valjean. Jean-Luc Picard. Jean. Yeah. You know what? You're you're winning. You win. Right? You win. You win. I concede. Yep. Every once in a while, I got to win one of these things. <laughs> Marmalade. Marmalade. That's that it. That was it. It's marmalade. That's our that's our our safe word, guys. Oh goodness! Thank God. <laughs> Okay, so... Nobody dies today. (laughs) So, do you you have anything else for 
I got tonight. nothing. No. Okay. So next time, the interlude between chapters two and three and chapter three. It'll be it'll be less reading because you won't have two weeks to do it in. And, you know, we've kind of got introduced to a lot of characters, set up a lot of the setting and the world building. So we'll we'll take it in kind of smaller sections from here, I think. And hey, just a huge thank you to the listeners who have come over from the King Killer Chronicles with us. Absolutely. We really appreciate you. We appreciate your interactions and, and glad you're you're still hanging on. And welcome to people who are just finding us uh, because we're covering this book series. I can't wait to... We'll have a whole new crop of people that we get to interact with, so it'll be fun. Right. So how can they find us? They can find us on the dukeanddutchesspodcast.com. That's our website. And that's where we have all of our episodes. You can also find us on iTunes and on the Google Play Store and on Stitcher. We're also on Intune Radio, which you probably know these things if you found us. You've found a way to come across it. You can also connect with us on our Twitter page at the D&D Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. We are on Facebook, on our Facebook page, at the Duke and Duchess. I do also want to highlight that we have a Facebook group, which is really, I mean, we just started it, and we, we've really only kind of got a small subsection of our listeners who, who have kind of caught on to it at this point. But you can go on to Facebook and search for the Duke and Duchess podcast group, and I'm, I'm telling you that because the URL is ridiculous to try to give you. So you can find us there by searching for that. And we have a lot of good conversations. It gives people a chance to interact, not just with us, but with the other listeners in a format that, you know, is more than 140 characters at a time. So I think it's a really good thing to do. And we've had some really great conversations on we that have. Facebook page. So we really, really have. If you're yeah. just looking for other people to nerd out with, Check it out. It's a good way to do it. Absolutely. You know, and now that we're getting beyond the King Killer Chronicles, I think, you know, the topics will start to expand as well. So we'll get some, you know, interaction that goes just out, you know, just beyond the Patrick Rothfuss stuff. So that's going to be fun. We love the reviews. So, you know, to Benny333333333, thank you so much for that review. We appreciate it. What we really love more than anything, though, are the people who tell their friends and tell, you know, their coworkers and tell other people on social media because word of the mouth is what we really covet. That's what we really, really covet. So thank you especially to those folks. So, for example, we give a special thank you to Joe Hurst on Twitter, who is at HurstJoe86, who got five of his friends to start reading The Name of the Wind and then to supplement their reading with our podcast. That's fantastic. How and awesome we should, is that? We should uh, comment that we are going to be returning to the world of Temerant at some point in the podcast. Not sure. Um, we have some theory casts in the works in various formats. So we will be kind of going back and forth, but we, we definitely will be, our main podcast will be covering this Um Seer, the, the gentleman, gentleman bastards, bastards yep. in book club format but we'll be mentioning Temerant here and there yeah and we will do some one-offs particularly for people who are kind of new and just coming on to us we will do the occasional one-off and i can tell you now that when we get around christmas and new year's we're probably going to take at least a week off maybe two weeks off around christmas and new year's 
but we will try to have some material recorded for that. We might be able to sub sub in some one-off stuff there. So we may end up having three episodes of, of uh, Liza Lock on Lamora and then take a break for the holidays and then get started back up in the new year. So we don't really know exactly how that's going to play out, but just to kind of give you a heads up for how that's going to go. So that's everything. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.